had some really good results on the YouTube channels that we have uh, recently. It seems that in the last six months or thereabouts, uh, things have picked up significantly. And uh, the, for example, the Ezekiel's message, when you combine the Spanish, which is over one and a half million views, and the English, which is just shy of, of uh, a million views, uh, we have over 2.5 million views of that particular telecast. That's a full-length uh, telecast, which, is, which means that people had to sit down and watch it for uh, 27 and a half, 28 and a half minutes, uh, or at least I say they had to. Obviously, not everybody does, but a significant number have done so. And so we're very thankful for that. Uh, who are the end-time superpowers? Uh, very recent telecasts is now over 20,000 views. Uh, like Sheep to the Slaughter is 22,000. These are picking up 1 to 2,000 a day, and so they are climbing. The Three Days and Three Nights whiteboard. How many of you have seen the whiteboard by Mr. D. Simone? Okay. Uh, if, if you haven't, you may want to go to our website and look that up. That has... Uh, now topped uh, 105,000 views, and that's just been climbing uh, steadily here of recent dates. So uh, that may not be a, a huge number, whether even you know two, two million, two and a half million is not a, a great number worldwide. But this is something that we haven't seen happening for uh, most of the time that we've uh, we've had these things, and so we are seeing. Uh, some really significant upticks in that way. Very thankful for it. The coworker letter that went out this week, we made a couple errors in it. Uh, I made an error, two errors, and uh, our reviewers didn't catch them until a little bit later. But if you got the email uh, or online, you got them corrected. But I was pointing out how some of these things are happening, and we had 600,000 views of the... Uh, seven signs of the Antichrist, and I said in Spanish, which, I don't know why I said that, is French. Uh, so it gave the French, so anybody who speaks Spanish or French will look at that and say, what kind of nuts are these out there? <laughs> but uh, that was one, and then the wrong name of a booklet. Uh, I want to announce this as well, uh, because many of you may not be aware of it, but Mr. Wilner Pierre, who's originally from Haiti, since speaks French, is now, uh, he's been recording, but the programs that he's recorded for French television are now going out. And the first three have been about, the first one was about average for that particular, um, and I'm speaking of Canada now, right now, not the Caribbean, but in Canada, averaging about 31 views, not views, but uh, this is television, uh, responses per week. And uh, the next one was, I think, 34, which is above average. And the last one, I think Mr. Rohovich mentioned about 53. So Mr. Pierre has not lost anything. Usually when you have a new presenter, you lose a little bit, but if anything, it's kicked it up, and so we're very, very pleased with that. And Mr. Brochu, who has done most of them for the last several years in French uh, up there in Canada, uh, is recognized on the street. And the station says that we are uh, head and shoulders above or, you know, many times over 
the number of viewers on that station, 6.30 in the morning, Sunday morning, than the next program, which is the Catholic Mass. So um, uh, it is uh, very interesting. It seems like it's wide open, and we're very excited about that. So I just wanted to add a few of those things along with what uh, uh, Mr. Hall had mentioned during the offertory. Uh, one other thing that I, I wanted to clarify, because there has been confusion on this, and that's over in Exodus, the 12th chapter, and this has to do with the uh, times that we are going through at this, this time, especially the Passover the other night. And which, by the way, I hope all of you had a wonderful evening. We certainly did with 20-some-odd people at the, uh, the Smith's house uh, last night. And, you know, Mr. Smith is very inclusive in every way. Uh, they had a Red Sea scene, uh, you know, sand on the, in the middle of the table. And he had everything from dinosaurs to Liberace with a piano. Uh, all these people, Klingons and uh, Star Wars characters, uh, walking along, getting, going through the Red Sea. So uh, we, we appreciated that. <clears throat> At any rate, uh, in, in Exodus, the 12th chapter, in verse 30, it says, uh, So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not one house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, uh, go out from, from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Now, there is a misunderstanding of that, and we've even had that come out in our literature in the past, saying that uh, Moses and Aaron were called for by Pharaoh, so they, they left after the death angel, and then they went to see Pharaoh, and he said, get out. And, and that is uh, not correct, and I wanted to correct that to make sure, because uh, every once in a while we have an old article that kind of slips up, uh, slips in, as we did the living education uh, class this time, uh, stating that. Now, how do we know they didn't go there? Well, if you go back to the 10th chapter and the 9th plague uh, in verse uh, 27, this is after the 9th plague, the darkness, said, But the, the Eternal hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, said to Moses, Get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. Now, we know that Pharaoh didn't always tell the truth. He may have felt that way, but that doesn't mean that that's the way it would come out because we know that he said you'd go, and then he'd uh, reverse his decision on that. But verse 29 is very important. So Moses said... You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Now, we, we know that that's in this lifetime, not uh, necessarily uh, in the resurrection. But in this life, he said, you've spoken well. I will never see your face again. Then you go on into the 11th chapter. And it's, it's kind of like this voice. If you're watching the Ten Commandments movie, there's all this uh, dialogue and everything going on. And then there's this voice, and it gives some information as to what, um, you know, some background as to what is happening. And you have a bit of that. And then you get over to verse 8 of uh, Exodus, the 11th chapter, and it says, 
And here Moses says, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. Afterward I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So that was the end of the conversation that is carried on there from the ninth plague uh, meeting and uh, at, at that point. So he says that, you know, your servants will come down and beg us to leave. When it says go out, uh, rise and go out there in uh, chapter 12, verse 31, uh, he's, he will call for you. Uh, that, that calling for them wasn't necessarily that they would meet with Pharaoh, but call out to you. And this is all clarified in the 10th and 11th chapters previously. And we need to understand that, that they did not violate God's instruction to go out before morning. And they didn't count morning at 12.01 a.m. Morning, consistently in Scripture, the word that is used there, Boker, uh, has to do with when it starts to get light. When it starts to get light until after it is fully light. It, it covers a range of time, but never in the middle of the night. Never at uh, 12, 1, 2, 3 in the morning, uh, as some have uh, misunderstood on this. So I wanted to clarify that. Uh, so that we, it, that's one of those things that, that those who want a 14th uh, exodus, which, you know, there, there are so many things that mitigate against that, but uh, they, they say that, well, after the death angel passed over, then they could go out at night. No, God said don't go out until morning, until it starts to get light. And very clearly Moses and Aaron and all of the Israelites observed that particular command from God. They didn't violate it right afterward. He didn't say, stay in until the death angel passes over. He said, till morning. <clears throat> this feast that we are celebrating, this Feast of Unleavened Bread, may seem strange to the world. And for that matter, some who are new to the church, some who are keeping this festival for the very first time, may find it a little bit awkward, strange, or unusual, especially if they have to explain it to a family member or a relative that they're keeping the feast of, of unleavened bread, you know. Yeah. Uh, because who keeps the feast of unleavened bread? That's a strange-sounding term. Uh, now, Easter does not sound strange to their ears. It sounds very normal. Uh, but for us... The keeping of this means no fluffy bread, no hamburgers, no croutons, and no cake for seven days. And as will always be the case, you may never have a neighbor come over giving you a cake unless it is the Days of Unleavened Bread. Uh, one of our neighbors uh, mentioned something about uh, going to have his wife's favorite Easter cake, and he'd bring some over. Well, please don't. Uh, I think I've told you the story how we actually had bread on our porch, a squirrel or a crow or something. I, I think that was two years in a row, if I'm not mistaken. Now, how, how that happened, I, I mean, never have bread on our porch uh, unless we were out there. But, uh, you know, here, I, I had pictures of it at one time. It was, uh, it was pretty remarkable. But it's always that way. We don't get Girl Scout cookies or Girl Guide, as they call them in other parts of the world, cookies, because it seemed like they always came. No matter how the Days of Unleavened Bread fit, they always arrived at that during the Days of Unleavened Bread. So we, we no longer get those. You know, eggs 
or egg-laying rabbits seem normal to this world. But no fluffy bread, uh, that seems strange to most people. So we must ask the question, is this what God wants us to do? Does he want us to keep this particular festival? Uh, if not, then why would we do it? If so, why would we not do it? Mr. Herbert Armstrong often began a Holy Day sermon with this simple question, why are we here? Why are we here, brethren? And he'd usually shout that out, and then he'd go on to explain it. And so that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to explain at least part of the reason why we're here today, because there's so much that could be said about it. But I'll answer that question. Unlike the holidays of this world, the customs and traditions surrounding God's festivals are tied to the spiritual significance of the observance. For example, in the world, Christmas trees, mistletoe, colored eggs, chocolate bunnies, and Easter bonnets have absolutely no relationship whatsoever to the birth or resurrection of Christ. And yet those are the accoutrements that, that go along with those celebrations. If you've not read the booklet on Easter, the untold story, please do so. Just give the office a call and they'll be glad to send you a copy of it. It goes into some of the history of, uh, of Easter. And it is pretty remarkable when you look at it and see what it is that they are worshiping. That uh, booklet also tells the three days and three nights and how that works out. Or you can watch Mr. DeSimone's Three Days and Three Nights whiteboard, along with the other 105,000 that have watched it up to this date. But when it comes to the holy days we observe, eating unleavened bread, fasting, blowing trumpets, and living in temporary dwellings, they have everything to do with the meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of the Feast of Trumpets, the blowing of trumpets, of fasting on the Day of Atonement, and of living in temporary dwellings, the Feast of Tabernacles. The things that we do have direct significance. They tie together with the festivals that we are observing. Whereas in the world, there is no connection between what they're doing and how they celebrate it. Now, isn't it strange how mainstream Christianity rejects the holy days found in the Bible, which are filled with spiritual imagery, and then they take up patently pagan holidays, which are filled with meaningless superstitions? Now, we were once a part of it, so we're not throwing stones at people. We're just, I, I'm just saying we, we marvel when you think about it. When you stop and think about what is done in religion, does it make sense? I was a part of that. I didn't know any better. I'm sure that many of you in this room, unless you grew up in the church, you were there at one time as well. You just did these things because that was what you do. You kept Halloween. You kept uh, St. Valentine's Day. and you, d you did all these things because that's the way that you grew up. Now, it is interesting. We might ask the question, how did these meaningless superstitions get into mainstream Christianity? And I could spend a whole sermon quoting reputable sources explaining how it happened and why it happened. But let me just read one that Mr. Wakefield had uh, 
had found, and he went to great lengths to get this source. It's not an easy source to get a hold of. But it's called The Apostolic Age and Patristic Thought, Liturgy on the Authority of the Apostles by Gerard uh, Rowards. Now, liturgy just means a, a prescribed form of public worship. And so he is talking about the Apostolic Age in patristic thought. And here's what he says. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's important that we understand that we are on very strong grounds for what we do. And it shows the shaky ground upon which the world celebrates their religious holidays. It says they, that speaking of early church leaders, frankly granted that the liturgical practice, you know, the public worship practices, followed by the quartadecimans, those who kept the 14th day, the Passover, and possibly by other opponents, was of apostolic origin. They admitted that. It came from the apostles. But at the same time, tried to play down the relevance of this fact. So they knew it. They accepted the fact that it came from the apostles and of Christ. But they played down the fact. In their view, there was something which mattered more than the following of the example of the apostles on this point. That's amazing. There's something more important than following the apostles who were taught by Christ and Christ himself. Something more important. What could that possibly be that's more important? Well, namely, the unity of the Christians. So it's more important that we be unified in what we do than it is in doing what is right. Now, we could quibble, I suppose, over little things that we do. Sometimes people wonder how long services are, or why do we have services twice on some of the holy days, and all this type of thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about big things. We're talking about whether we keep the Passover or whether we keep Ishtar, which is really another name that goes right back to Ashereth, or Ashtoreth, which is found in Scripture. And again, that booklet on Easter points that out. So it says, in their view, there was something which mattered more than the following of the, of the example of the apostles on this point, namely the unity of the Christians. This became endangered by differences with regard to the celebration of Passover. And the best remedy to this problem would be that the minorities followed the majority. So we just follow the majority. That's what we must do. That's what they thought. Even if the claim of the apostolic origin of their tradition was well-founded in itself. One of the most interesting representatives of this strategy is the church historian Socrates. As already remarked before, this author makes mention of the fact that both Quartadesimans and their opponents lay claim on apostolic authority. So he point out that those who opposed the, uh, the celebration of Passover claimed apostolic authority. Now, when you read Eusebius and you find out about uh, Victor and, and uh, Polycarp and Polycrates and the, what, what they went on there, uh, Polycrates said that he, or Polycarp, I believe it was, said that he followed the example of John, the apostle who taught him, and the other apostles, including uh, uh, Philip the evangelist and so forth. But the other side claimed they followed different 
apostles. Now that gets really interesting. It's very interesting. Read the subject in Eusebius. You can read it right there. They followed different leaders. And who were those leaders? They weren't the apostles of Christ. They were different apostles. They had others they followed. Socrates then tries to find a way out of this predicament by uh, relativizing the claims advanced by both parties, and he does so on the basis of what N. Bronx has called a liberal historical analysis. The point he attempts to make is that the appeal to the behavior of either Christ or the apostles, even if the historical facts adduced are correct in themselves, is problematic. So what we do is we throw out apostolic authority altogether, and then we decide the issue because some claim this, some claim so we just throw it all out, even though they've really already admitted that the Passover was kept by Christ and the apostles. So the point he attempts to make is that the appeal to the behavior of either Christ or the apostles, even if the historical facts adduced are correct in themselves, is problematic. Incidentally, so he adds, this does not only hold true for the celebration of Easter, but for many other customs that were observed by the first Christians. In his view, these customs are not normative for the Christians of his time. In other words, other things that we do, that we know that came from the Bible, they were not normative for the Christians of his time. If they would be really consistent in this matter, so he remarks penetratingly, these Christians should have, have to observe many more Jewish customs which are mentioned in the Gospels. Notice, mentioned in the Gospels. Not that they're just Jewish, but remember Christ kept the Passover. He kept the Days of Unleavened Bread. And of course, he kept the Feast of Tabernacles on the last great day. And we read the Apostle Paul was still counting time by the Day of Atonement. And, and so you see all these things in the, 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 not only the Gospels, but the New Testament. But he says that if we really look at this from a historical perspective of what the apostles and Christ did, there are a lot of other things that we've got wrong as well. Very amazing passage when you look at it. But God has called his nation, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. A, a nation steeped in idolatrous practices and customs. That's the very thing that Christianity embraced, is pagan, heathen customs. And yet God called his people out of Egypt, out of those practices. And this is no accident. God wanted them to learn something from this. Egypt typified the bondage of sin. Now, pop psychologists and those enamored by them think that they're the first to discover and understand addiction. I remember some years ago uh, pastoring a congregation that was uh, steeped in all this. Uh, you hear people talk about addiction. And they had all this pop psychology that they were following. As though this is something revolutionary, something new. And yet God shows us in his word that sin is bondage. It shows us addiction. It's all about addiction. Israel was in bondage in Egypt. Let's notice in Exodus 1, Exodus 1, beginning in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. We don't want to lose them, these valuable slaves that we have here. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. Now these two cities were somewhere between 25 and 30 miles apart as a crow flies if um, certain biblical maps, or at least the one I, I checked on this, was, was correct. Uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 miles apart. And this becomes important as we uh, go through this. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. Or, as the margin has it, with harshness. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Now, we probably have a little better understanding of, of what it would be like in Egypt living here in the south. I, I remember one of the most miserable days of my life, other than the fact I was fishing, was down in Santee uh, Cooper Reservoir down in South Carolina here. And I'd given sermons in two congregations, and then after the Sabbath, several of us, including Mr. Poole, our pastor over there in, in Anderson, went down there that night, drove down that night, and we got there maybe, I don't know, three in the morning, whenever it was, because we left a little bit late. None of us had any sleep, and we couldn't sleep there. It was just way too hot, and we couldn't keep the, the engine running forever. And about four, I think his, his uncle got there, and and we got in the boat, and we went all the way over to the other side, totally dark. I went over there and caught some bait, and then went and fished all day. And it got really still. You know how it is when all you can see in every direction is glass, and the sun beating down in the heat of the summer. And I never will forget that. One of the most, I mean, I enjoyed the fishing and the company, but physically speaking, it was pretty miserable with no sleep, and the sun beating down, and the high humidity, and no air moving whatsoever. And then we had to, after the day was over, go home, which was interesting. But we made it. But when I think of that, I think also of what it must be like in Egypt, because when we were in Israel back in 1974 for the Feast of Tabernacles and got down by the, the Dead Sea, it was just muggy, stifling, hot, and warm. And I can only imagine that Egypt would be even worse because it's further south, surrounded by the tributaries of water that, uh, from uh, the Nile River, probably very humid, very hot. And you can imagine working in brick and mortar. I've never really done, br uh, not brick, well, I haven't done that either, but uh, uh, cement work, but everybody I've ever talked to says how much work working in cement is. It's, uh, I guess, heavy for, for one thing, but having to work it and make sure that 
it smoothed out uh, quickly and all that sort of thing. Uh, this would have been very hard to work in that kind of heat. And they were made to work with rigor, and they had people uh, whipping them if they didn't um, uh, work hard enough. So it must have been terribly miserable for them. In the second chapter, verse 23, it says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king uh, of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Now notice it doesn't say that they directly cried out to God, but they cried out, and God did hear their crying out, whoever they were crying out to. Because they really didn't know God at this time, as we see from subsequent events. They knew false gods, but they cried out, and God heard them anyway. And so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Not that he'd forgotten, but in the sense that he, uh, it was time to do something about that. And uh, verse 25, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And so God then began to work with them uh, through Moses. Um, tells the story of, of Moses and, and um, how he actually, previous to this, how he was, uh, how he killed an Egyptian, had to leave. And then we know a little bit more about Moses and how he was introduced to God during that, uh, toward the end of 40 years out in the wilderness. He was 40 years old. He goes out, uh, leaves Egypt, and he spends the next 40 years uh, learning how to properly lead and getting some of the Egyptian ideas out of his mind and humbling him and humbling himself and all the things that, that went on there. Now, in the same way, when we break God's holy and righteous commandments, we also descend into the bondage of sin. And sin can be very addictive. It, it can be bondage. Just as Israel was in bondage, they couldn't get out on their own. Sometimes we can find ourselves in bondage. Notice over in Second Peter, the second chapter. Second Peter, the second chapter. And we'll begin in verse 1. It says here, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, we've seen that in our lifetime, how false prophets came in, false teachers came in, with destructive heresies telling us that we can keep this world's religions, that we can blend in with it, Forgetting what Christ said on the night in which he was betrayed, where he told his disciples that I am not of the world even as they are not of the world, or they're not of the world even as I'm not of the world. And he's pointed out that in the world they'd have tribulation, but there were those who wanted to blend in with their neighbors, blend in with this world. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. That's really a, 
a statement of how things have been down through history. It isn't just for our time today. It wasn't just for Peter's time then. It was partly for his time, of course, partly for our time. But this has been the pattern down through history. We can look at the Old Testament, how the judges came along and they'd get them on track. And then after the judge died, they'd go off track again, time and time and time again. And I know that I used to listen to these sermons when I first came into the church and talk about how the children of Israel murmured and they did this and they did that. And you always wondered, how in the world could they be so stupid? Well, after you've seen it in technicolor on a big wide screen, you see how it happens. How people who know the truth turn right back to their own vomit like a dog or like the sow going back into the, uh, you know, the, the mire once again. People come out of it and they go right back into it. In Romans, the sixth chapter, Romans 6, you know, this is a warning for us. We, we can't just look and say, okay, well, others have done this. This is a warning for us that we don't do the same thing. So we don't follow that example because from now until the time of the end, there will be those who go back into that which they came out of at one time. It will continue to be, happen again. I don't mean on massive scale, such as we saw previously. We don't know that that won't happen, but we don't have to assume that it has to happen. It depends on what we do. Verse 15 of Romans 6, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? You see, that's what happened to people in the past. They say, Oh, we're, we're, we're under grace. We don't have to keep the law anymore. But we get to keep different laws, different standards, different ways. Not out of the Bible, but out of heathenism and idolatry. Shall we continue in sin? Sin is a transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4. Because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not, he says. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Obedience. Wow. There's that word, obedience, that leads to righteousness. Obedience to what? To this world? To its standards? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin. Yes, we were slaves of sin. Even those who grew up in the church you know, until you are truly converted, uh, you're, you're slaves of, of sin, slaves of this world, wanting to follow the crowd to some degree or another. Now, those who have friends in the church and, you know, good families and everything like that, maybe you don't go into the same depths of sin, but we know that there are young people in the church of God, the living church of God, who vape, who use drugs, who get involved in illicit sex. We know that happens. We might not know who they are. Some of our kids probably do. I don't know who they are. I could make some educated guesses, but you can always be wrong, so it's best not to guess. But we do know. We hear reports of it from time to time. 
that there are those out there vaping, using marijuana. We even have adults who ask the question, well, if marijuana is legal, is it okay if we smoke it? That question has been asked. I don't know how many people think that way. It's amazing to me how many people defend marijuana when we know, you know, from the medical authorities that there are downsides to it. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But let's, let's just notice here in Romans 6, verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Sin is the transgression of God's law. Or of obedience. Obedience to what? Obviously, the law of God is implied there. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, not free to sin, but free from sin, from the bondage of sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, notice, of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, and as Dr. Meredith used to say, he's not talking about traffic laws. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For, ho for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Yes, there were those who came along and said, free, free at last. Free from what? I don't have to pray each day. I don't have to study each day. I don't have to keep that Sabbath. I get to work on that day. I'm free to put up a Christmas tree and sunrise services. And after all, Christ was resurrected. Why shouldn't we celebrate that? Well, that's good human reason, but look from Genesis to Revelation and see where, well, let's, let's say from Matthew to Revelation, where you see any place where anybody celebrated the resurrection of Christ, other than the fact they celebrated that he, they were rejoicing that it happened, but there's no celebration of that on a yearly basis, whereas there is for Passover, isn't there? So we use human reason around it. He says, I speak in human terms, verse 19, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Holiness has to do with being separated from. Uh, separated, in a, it, it has a slightly different connotation than sanctify, but it's a difficult word for us to understand in the English language. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Wow. Everlasting life. 
I'm writing a semi-annual letter uh, advertising the uh, What Happens After Death, a uh, new booklet that we have. That might not be the right title. I better get these titles correct. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that's the subject. And, you know, you stop and think, okay, if we evolved, how in the world could we possibly have eternal life? Because how does that evolve? How, how do we die if we just evolved and, and then somehow come back if we're a product of evolution? And then you look at all the different ideas that people have, reincarnation and, and such like. And, and some of this, I, I have no doubt, involves demons. There's a two-year-old that thought he was a fighter pilot during the Second World War that was shot down, and apparently he had a lot of the details. And no way that a two-, three-, four-year-old could possibly have those, those details, but barely could talk. But what his name was, the name of the ship, which is a very obscure aircraft carrier. whole book written about it. Perhaps through demon possession, those uh, details can come out. But there are people that think that we're going to come back in some other form as some other individual. Well, there's a couple down in Australia that he believes that he's Jesus Christ and she's Mary Magdalene, and they're living together. Uh, you know, it, it's, and he's got some sort of a, a church going. How ignorant can people be of the, the Word of God? That's not going to happen. Jesus Christ would not come back and just shack up with Mary Magdalene. Uh, but it is interesting how people will believe almost anything, no matter how nutty it is but can't accept the truth. And I was talking with Mr. Wahovich the other day over the fact that you've got people that believe some of these things. Uh, and I don't want to be demeaning, but you've got these flat earthers, and, and there's some in the church. It may not be after I say it again, but, you know, how devoid of reality of the world in which we live for someone to believe that the earth is flat. Well, they, they listen to somebody on the internet. But the fact is, as Mr. Wahabich said, as our educational system degenerates, we're going to have a population that really does not understand the facts of history, the facts of science. Uh, you know, how many people would you have to have to be in on the conspiracy, and how many countries do you have to have who all would agree that we're going to make the earth round a sphere um, if, uh, if, if that's a hoax? You know, it, it, it's devoid of, of reality. I don't care what kind of argument they have. The facts are there. The evidence is there that the earth is round. And yet they come up to some metaphorical statement about the pillars of the earth, or four pillars of the earth, or four. I, I, I wonder, is, is, it, is, it a, is it a round, flat earth, or is it a, um, uh, you know, a square one, <laughs> depending on which of those poetic expressions one might use? And then to find some scientists out there 
claims on the, you know, somebody comes out on the internet and claims all kinds of things and nobody knows what they are. You know, we have people live in Australia, we have people all over the world, and I don't need to go into it, but I, I'm just saying that there are all kinds of ideas that people have that have no basis in reality. We've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And we have fruit under everlasting life. Yes, everlasting life. What a wonderful gift that is. And when we, we think about it, 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 it doesn't seem important when you're 16. But when you're 60 or 76 or 86, it does become important, doesn't it? We want to know. Will I live again? The wages of sin is death. That's what we have to look forward to with sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In John, the eighth chapter, John 8 and verse 30. It tells us in beginning verse 30. He spoke these words, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Verse 31, John 8, 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So we must abide in his word. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth will make us free from a lot of things from the bondage of sin to just nutty ideas. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now, even the reality there was that they were under the Roman Romans or Roman rule, that's that, in that sense. But they said, you know, we're, we're slaves, no one. You'll be made free. How can you say that? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So when we commit sin, we become enslaved to it. Let's take some examples of the bondage of sin. There must be a certain number of people here who started smoking at one time in your life. And you never thought probably that you would be a slave to it but you wake up one day and you're enslaved to it and you decide this is probably not good for my health and besides it's costing me a lot of money and if you live in uh, Saskatchewan as an example when it's 40 and 50 below wind chills and you can't smoke inside you got to go outside to have a smoke that seems like a really good day to quit in fact, I, I've said that to more than one person. Uh, walk out, yeah, this would be a good day to quit that habit, wouldn't it? Uh, that's really miserable. I think that probably most people here have not experienced that, that kind of cold. But it is uh, pretty miserable. And to have to stand out so that you can smoke, that's bondage. You're a slave to that. Because I think you would normally think, I don't want to go outside. 
You don't want to go outside any more than you have to. What about illicit sex? People get involved in all kinds of illicit sex. They become slaves to it. They know something's wrong, but they, they can't overcome it. They, I remember a man years ago that had been in the church, I think 20 years or so when I met him, I had to put him out of the church. He had a bad habit of visiting prostitutes. And I'll say this for him, he was an honest man. Because he'd want to come back to church, and I'd ask him, well, how are you doing? Well, not so good. Well, three times, four times the last week. And he, he said to me, he said, you know, I know I'm probably going to burn in hell. He didn't think he was going to fry forever, but burn up in hell. He said, I just can't help myself. He was a slave. Became enslaved to it. Some people are slaves to uncontrolled anger. They fly off the handle. They haven't learned to control their emotions. In fact, probably most of us have to learn to control our emotions in different circumstances. Some maybe it's anger, some uh, something else, but uh, we have to learn to control our emotions. But as we give vent to our emotions, we become enslaved to them. Some people can hardly go through a day without gossip. They become enslaved to that. Or lying. There are people that just can't seem to tell the truth. They, as, as one uh, fellow said one time, we asked this waitress about something, and he had worked this restaurant, so we knew what the answer was before he asked her to you know, bring something out. And she said, well, we don't have anything like that. And as he said, some people will tell a lie when the truth would work better. But they, they just don't know any better than to lie. Using recreational drugs. I've been quite surprised at how, how much people were, I don't know, offended or took to Cambridge at uh, Mr. Wahavich's booklet on marijuana. You know, he admits in the booklet that there may be some medical uses for it. But people send me information sometimes. I don't get a lot of it, but every once in a while you get something. Oh, it's a sacred plant. It was what they used for incense in the temple. And it's a sacred plant. It, it does this and that and everything else. You know, let's talk about medical marijuana for a moment. And, and I'm not going to back off on this. There may be medical purposes for it, but the whole medical marijuana thing is a ruse for making it legally recreationally. In other words, the people that have pushed that narrative from the beginning really want to smoke marijuana, period. Now, there might be, again, I please understand, just like the poppy and opioids. There may be some benefit under certain circumstances for it. But isn't it interesting how suddenly after these things become legalized, recreational, how they talk about all the tax money they bring in? In Minnesota, I just did the math on this this morning, looking something up, uh, every man, woman, and child is paying about $51 a year in tax as a result of what they bring in from marijuana sales. Now, obviously not every man, every woman, or every child is, uh, is smoking marijuana. So somebody's paying a whole lot of tax, 
And boy, the, the governments just love these things. They love the money that's coming in. Canada is exporting marijuana to other countries that can't get enough supply of it. And you can read various sources that really point out that the, the medical part is really just the, the ruse to get the foot in the door. And once the foot's in the door, then recreational comes along. Because if it can be a medicine, then it must be good or okay for others. Here's a source I, I, I quote off the Internet. It says, states that pass medical marijuana laws need to understand that they have chosen a path that will lead relentlessly to the complete decriminalization of marijuana. The medical marijuana issue is simply the wedge that cracks open the door. Once the public has accepted the idea of the legal use of marijuana, the groups favoring decriminalization know that it is just a matter of time before they achieve their objective. We need to understand what's behind this. Who's behind all these things? Have we forgotten Ephesians, the second chapter? The prince of the power of the earth, you know, the one that directs the course of this world. And he uses people to do such things. From uh, a site called CannabisNow.com, says, as nearly every country that has had that debate has found, once the admission that a marijuana is medicine is made, arguments for keeping it out of adults' hands become untenable. And all you have to do is look at the facts. State after state, country after country, says, well, let's make it legal for medical reasons. And given enough time, and it usually isn't very much time, it becomes legal recreationally. And yet there are penalties for doing so. I've talked to several members who have, you know, just voiced the fact that, you know, their son or brother or relative, once they started smoking marijuana, was never the same. That doesn't mean everybody doesn't mean everybody. But if it's one out of six that becomes schizophrenic, or if it's one out of ten or one out of twenty, it's too many. And it's bad enough that when you drive down the road, you've got people that, are, that have been drinking too much. Now do we want to add to that people have been smoking pot? You know, pot isn't what it was when I was out of high school you know, the, back in the 60s, it's not the same. It's many, many times more powerful today. They've engineered this crossbreeding, genetic engineering to make it, make it so much stronger. Now we have vaping. About, you know, they put a, a war on cigarettes, and so then they come out with vaping, which might have some benefit for someone who's hooked on cigarettes trying to get off. But depending on the brand and so forth, uh, they, they know that uh, some of them have 20 times the nicotine as, as a single cigarette. At least some reports say that. I don't know. I don't know how they, they know all these things, but some reports have said that. 
Now the question is, do you really want to be addicted to that? Because it won't take very long with vaping if there's that much nicotine in it to become addicted to it. And they have deliberately chosen various flavors, watermelon, cherry, all these different flavors to appeal to teenagers so that they can get them hooked on it. And then they can have that product sold to them. When they're addicted to it, they can sell it to them for the rest of their lives. Think how much money it costs. What about social media and television? There are people, no doubt, right here who are addicted to social media. I know in the church there are. But when you have, you know, 200 people or so, there are bound to be some in this group that are addicted to social media. But we always deny that we are. These days of unleavened bread are times when we can, we can look in the mirror and we can say, am I addicted to it? Well, let me go off of it for a while and see what happens. Do we have the courage to do so, to put it down for an entire week? Or will we have withdrawal symptoms? In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, you know, people ask, well, if marijuana is legal, then uh, is it okay? Or if vaping isn't uh, bringing all the tars that cigarettes do, is it okay? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now, did Paul mean that it was lawful for him to commit adultery or something like that? Of course not. Uh, he's, he's talking here about foods and different things. Uh, what's sold in the, the market there, if you read on, he talks about uh, meats offered to idols that are uh, found in the market. He tells them not to ask about it, whether it, it was or not. It's, it's meat. But anyway, they can be offered to idols, and so that created a conscience problem for some. But he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify, not all things lift up. Notice over the sixth chapter, very similar statement, but slightly different. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not become a slave to any in reality. So when it comes to some of these things like vaping, are we going to be brought under the power of it? Are we going to do something that enslaves us, knowingly so at the beginning, if you just look at the facts of it? He says, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. This will notice over in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Galatians 5 and verse 13. He says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. That's what God is doing for us. He's called us to liberty. 
to not be enslaved to this world, but be slaves to God. But that's a good kind of slavery. It produces good results. A slave to this world produces cancer, heartaches, heart attacks. It produces everything that is bad, sexually transmitted diseases. Those are the things that Satan offers, yes, free. Free from what? Free to do something that's going to enslave you, that's going to bring a terrible penalty upon you. No, brethren, we have been called to liberty. Let us thank God that we've been called to liberty. Let us thank God that some of you have overcome some of these things, some of these bad habits, whether it be smoking or whether it be other bad habits. You've overcome them. That's wonderful. And we rejoice with you, even if we don't know in every case what people have overcome. But we, we know that the fact that you are here, you've probably overcome a lot of things to start with. And we can rejoice in that fact. This is what God has called us to, is liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So instead of living the way this world lives, we are to live the way of love and we are to serve one another. Moses recognized that sin was a deception. Let's notice over, first of all, in Hebrews, uh, we'll look at what Paul says about it, the third chapter. Uh, here's what Paul says in the third chapter of Hebrews, and verses 12 and 13. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Yes, sin is very deceitful. This is, this is why it's so important for our young people, those who are teenagers and even earlier, I suppose, but for our teenagers to trust God and to trust your parents in so many things. They're going to keep you from a world of trouble. You know, sin is deceitful. It looks good. Now, you know, as, as an example, I think that a lot of teenager, teenagers get caught up in, in behavior, boy, girl, that is not beneficial in the long run. And when you think about, you know, a young fellow wanting to kiss a girl and vice versa, uh, that sounds like fun. And I would even say it is fun. You know, it's, uh, nobody's going to say it's not fun. But if it's not the right time and the right place, it can have consequences. And, and people don't kiss at a distance. They want to get closer. And it's a very short distance from one act to another act. And eventually you get yourself into trouble. Whether anybody ever knows about it, God knows about it, and you can hurt a future relationship as a result. There are things that we need to be very careful of. And as it says here, today lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Does smoking pot, is that attractive? I guess it must be. 
I, I confess that's not one of the mistakes in my life I've made. But I would guess that so many people want to do it that there must be some attraction to it. But, you know, I don't even want to take a chance on it. Because in the end, if you look at the statistics, it does have a detrimental effect that oftentimes people go from there to something else. It is a gateway drug to something else. And even if it's not, there are a number of people that are schizophrenic walking around, criminally insane, because for whatever reason, their brain dealt with it differently than the fellow next to them. It's not going to drive everybody insane, but I think they say about one out of six, if, it's, if a person is young enough, creates certain problems. And there are people who will tell you that they, they know of instances on a personal basis, anecdotally. But anecdotal evidence is not the best. There are some things that we just ought not do because sin is deceitful. Notice over in Hebrews 11th chapter, we'll get to what Moses did. You know, Moses sat pretty well there in Pharaoh's palace. But in verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, now, when he became of age, is that 40? I don't know. <laughs> when do you become of age? Uh, I don't know about you, but I, it took me a long time to feel like I'd grown up. And I think it's just by default when you find a lot of people younger than you, you figure, well, I must have arrived uh, somehow. But I don't know exactly what age it was, but I, I'll tell you, I, I, I hadn't arrived in my 20s and 30s as an adult. Um, but he became of age. Well, he left when he was 40, so is that what it's saying here? They say that your mind doesn't fully develop till about age 25. That's not too hard to believe. In fact, the hardest part of it is, does it develop by 25? It uh, may take a little longer for some of us. At any rate, uh, let's, let's move on here to uh, the verse, uh, verse 24, or verse 25. Uh, verse 24 says, uh, verse 25, choosing rather. So he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I love the old King James on this. It says, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Yes, sin is pleasurable. That's what it says here, enjoying the pleasures of sin, but it's only for a season. It's only for a period of time. And is it really worth the price that we sometimes pay? Even when it's not sin, you have to evaluate was a particular action worthwhile. And I remember, I probably told this story, forgive me, I'm getting old, so I tell stories over again, but uh, we, I used to go fishing up north when I lived in Michigan, and, and uh, my friend who was 11 years younger than me, I'd baptized he and his wife and, and married them. And, and uh, anyway, we, we went fishing, and we didn't get started till quite late, and so we, we drove up to the northern part of Michigan about three hours away, and then we 
we uh, bunked out in the living room of a friend's house, and we barely laid our heads down, and we heard a, a rooster crowing. And we kind of laughed about it. It was about four in the morning, and, and um, we didn't get any sleep, but we went out fishing, got up at six, and went fishing. And on the way back, he said, you know, sometimes the, the reward is not worth the effort. Uh, he was beginning to grow up. Sometimes the reward is not worth the effort, and that is certainly the case of sin. Now, we weren't doing anything sinful, I don't think, but, uh, you know, just going fishing, but sometimes you have to ask yourself, is the reward going to be worth it? Sometimes you think it is. There are times in life when you think the reward is going to be worth it. It doesn't work out. It just doesn't. Sooner or later, there's a price to pay. Sin looks good but it results in bondage and death. Notice Romans, the seventh chapter, Romans 7 and verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I don't understand why I do some of the things I do. For what I will to do, what I want to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. That's a struggle that we have, isn't it? If then I do what I will not to do, what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. I agree with the law of God. It's good. That's why I don't want to violate it. But he found that he came up short. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. You know, Paul came to a place where he just said in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He talks about the law of God. He talks about the law of sin or the pull of sin. And the next chapter he talks about a different law. Notice verse 1, therefore, or there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, how does that happen? How does that law work? For what the law could not do, that is, that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it's not all been done for us. We, we must overcome. But what it's talking about here, are, there, 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 there's a law which defines sin. Then there's the law of, of the flesh which desires, it's a pull to do something. It's like, it's like gravity, a law of gravity. It pulls us in to want to do something we shouldn't. But then there's the law of the Spirit of God that's like centrifugal force that is another force, not a law and thou shalt not, but it's a force, that type of law, that helps us to escape from that law of gravity that keeps pulling us in. And he talks about 
to be carnally minded, verse 6, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But notice the encouraging verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So we, we must be overcomers. It's very clear that we must be overcomers in this way. God gives us during this time a daily reminder for seven days of the deceptive and prevalent nature of sin. We know that Israel left Egypt with unleavened bread. They didn't have time to allow their bread to leaven. And so we're commanded in Leviticus 23, verses 4 to 8, Leviticus 23, verses 4 to 8, we're commanded to eat unleavened bread. And there's a positive lesson that we are to learn from these days because that unleavened bread pictures Jesus Christ. It pictures Christ living his life in us. We must imbibe of, of Jesus Christ. We must feed on Christ. And as we do, and that's why we have this positive thing of feeding on Christ, then we're able to overcome the poles of human nature. To the world, what you and I are doing looks strange and crazy. But what we do reminds us of the great and wonderful plan of salvation that God holds out to us and to all of mankind, ultimately, with, with all of his holy days. And so it teaches us powerful lessons about liberty versus bondage, about happiness and joy versus sorrow, and suffering, and lessons ultimately about life versus death. So let us rejoice in the precious gift of these days that God gives us. And let us keep this feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth.